0: If you turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, as we are flying over the verbal terrain or landscape of this marvelous book that was penned by the Apostle John, who describes this book as a prophecy, or as we're reading in chapter 1 and verse 3, when John will write, Blessed the one who is reading and the ones who are hearing the words of the prophecy. And then when we come to the last chapter of this volume, chapter 22, John will write of the sayings of the prophecy of this book in chapter 22, verse 7, and then the sayings of the prophecy of this book, in chapter 22, verse 10, and then the words of the prophecy of this book, chapter 22, verse 18, and then the words of the book of this prophecy, chapter 22, verse 19. And he uses the term prophecy four times in chapter 22 in order to describe the contents of the book. So clearly, the Apostle John wants us as the reader to understand This truly is a book of prophecy. I think of the words of Mark Twain, who once wrote, The art of prophecy is very difficult, especially with respect to the future. Now, that would underscore certainly the thought that even though prophecy is not an easy area to understand, it nevertheless is understandable. And therefore, it behooves all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ to know something about prophecy, especially in the light of the fact that 27% of the Bible was prophetic at the time of writing. So I turn once again to this book of prophecy that emphasizes both in chapter 1 as well as chapter 19, the unveiling the uncovering, the disclosure of Jesus Christ. And the reason why the book is so much about Jesus Christ is because according to chapter 19 and verse 10, the testimony from or about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So prophecy revolves around, prophecy centers upon the person of Jesus Christ. And you certainly see it here in chapter 1 and chapter 19. In chapter 1, we read this in verse 7. Behold, he comes with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and everyone who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will beat their breast in mourning and grief him, Which, of course, speaks about the actual coming of Jesus Christ when he returns to the earth. Now, when we think of the coming of Christ, or when we think of the return of Jesus Christ, this is one of the most pervasive doctrines on the pages of the New Testament. It is mentioned over 300 times, which would be an average of about one for every 13 verses from Matthew to Revelation. It prompted one New Testament writer to say, the faith of the New Testament is dominated by this expectation. And obviously we're talking about something that's going to be quite unique in the history of the world. In the words of one, it will transcend all events, in space and time, hitherto experienced. His first coming was marked by poverty and obscurity, but his second coming is going to be very different. His second coming is going to be marked with power and with glory. So when you talk about the importance of a doctrine such as this, keep in mind, again, 300 references in the documents of the New Testament, so on average... One every 13 verses speak of the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, when we think of the coming of Jesus Christ, I believe it will happen in two specific phases. If we read through the Old Testament, we read statements like this. And you read these many, many times in the Old Testament. But listen to this one statement as I read it. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counsel and Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. Now, that's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Or listen to another statement, and you have these all in the Old Testament, but listen to this one. This is Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king comes unto thee. He is just in bringing salvation. Lowly, riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the nations. His dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. Now that is Isaiah chapter 9, 6 and 7, and this is Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And when you read statements like that, you would think that all of this happens simultaneously. All of this happens at the very same time, but we know it doesn't. Those passages of Scripture speak of our Lord's first coming as well as His second coming. And there's over 2,000 years between the first and now the second coming. We're still anticipating the second coming. But if you're reading these statements in the Old Testament, you would think that it happens all at the same time. And yet we read of His first coming and His second coming back to back, sometimes in the very same verse. But verse next to verse... And we now know that there's a separation between the first and the second coming. So when we come to the coming of Christ and we read the New Testament, we recognize that the New Testament sets forth the coming in two specific phases. Now I want you to look at this timeline. And hopefully everyone has it. Janice, do you have this timeline? Oh, no. Sells, so, you got this timeline. Now if you think of this timeline, you have the church on earth and then you have this rapture, resurrection that we've talked about of church age saints. So there's going to be a rapture, resurrection, we we talked about this in 1 Thessalonians 4, and that's very different from the return of Christ. So I want you to notice rapture. And I want you to notice the return. Those are the two phases of his coming. The rapture is when church-age saints are taken from earth to heaven. And the return of Christ is when church-age saints return with Christ from heaven to the earth. So these are two phases that have to be differentiated. They're not going to happen at the same time. So I have the rapture of church-age saints, and then I have the return of Christ when he returns to the earth. And then when we read through the New Testament, we realize we have to make a difference between these two phases. There's got to be a contrast between the two. So think about the rapture as over against the return. At the time of the rapture, we meet Christ in the air. At the time of the second coming, the return of Christ, he comes to the Mount of Olives to meet the saints on earth. When you talk about the rapture, at the time of the rapture, the Mount of Olives is completely unchanged, as well as Jerusalem. But when you talk about the second coming, the return of Christ when he returns to the earth, the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem are going to be vastly changed. If we talk about the rapture, living saints are translated. But when you talk about the return of Christ, you don't read about any translation of saints. When you read of the return of Christ, at the rapture, the saints go to heaven. At the second coming, at his return, the saints remain on earth without any translation. If we talk about the rapture, at that time, the world is not going to be judged and the world will continue in sin. But at the time of the second coming, the return of Christ, when he returns to the earth, the world is going to be judged and righteousness is going to be established on the earth. If you talk about the translation of the church, that is going to take place before the tribulation. It is going to take place before the day of wrath. But when you talk about the return of Christ, that is going to follow the tribulation. If you talk about the rapture, it is described as imminent. It can happen at any moment of time. But when you talk about the second coming, that return of Christ, it is preceded by all kinds of signs that are given to the nation of Israel. If you talk about the rapture or the translation of living believers... That is a truth only revealed in the New Testament. But if you talk about the return of Christ to the earth, that is a prominent truth that is revealed in both Old Testament and New Testament. If we talk about the rapture, it concerns only the saved. The second coming, when he returns to the earth, it involves the saved as well as the unsaved. At the rapture, Satan is not bound. But when he returns to the earth, Satan is bound and thrown into the abyss. No unfulfilled prophecy stands between the church and the rapture. But there are signs, and these signs have to be fulfilled before the return of Christ to the earth. So when you talk about the rapture and you talk about the return, they're not the same thing. They're two phases of the coming of Christ. At the rapture, the Lord comes back before the day of the Lord. At the return, he returns to establish a reign of peace, to establish a kingdom on earth. So when I think about the rapture, I recognize it's imminent. It can happen at any moment of time. Whereas when I talk about the second coming, this return of Christ, it will take place after what we know as the tribulation. So when I think of this chart, this timeline, I think of the church on earth and then at any moment of time, we don't know when, there's going to be a rapture, resurrection of only church age saints and we're all taken up into heaven. And then you think about what's going to take place on earth and then Jesus is going to return to the earth after this period that we know as the tribulation. Now, let's think about what happens when the rapture resurrection takes place. All church-age saints are taken to heaven, those who have died and those who are physically alive. So the corruptible body has become incorruptible, the mortal body has become immortal, and now we're with Christ in the third heaven. What happens at that moment of time when we're snatched up? We know all kinds of things are going to take place on earth. But what is going to take place in heaven in terms of all of us? And if you'll notice this little timeline, when the church is in heaven, you then move to what is known as the judgment seat of Christ. That is the Bema seat. This is the judgment seat of Christ. It is going to happen at the time of the rapture resurrection. When all church aid saints are taken to heaven... Then we're going to stand before Jesus Christ at what is known as the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. Now I want to read several verses of Scripture, and I want you to follow along with me as I read them. The first one's in John chapter 14, and I want you to notice what Jesus says to His disciples the night before His death. This is in John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. And he places it in prohibition. Stop letting your heart be troubled. You will believe it in God. Believe also in me. Now the first when you you read these verbs, the ending can either be indicative or imperative. It's spelled identical. So if you read it, the, the question always is, is he commanding them to do something or is he stating something as fact? I take the first one as indicative. This is factual. And I take the second one as an imperative. So I'm going to read it this way. Stop letting your heart be troubled. You are believing in God, you also believe in me. In my house, in the house of my father, are many, in my I means, um, dwelling places, personal permanent dwelling places. In the house of my father are many personal permanent dwelling places. But if not, I would have told you because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming again. And he places it in a present tense, which you would think of as a futuristic present. I will come, but it's, it's, it's factual. I'm coming again. And I'll receive you to myself in order that where I am, you also may be. Now, when I read this, I believe this is referring to the rapture, resurrection that is going to take place. He's there preparing a place and then He's going to return and we're going to be taken to that place. So I read it here in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Now turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 14, Romans 14. And I want you to notice the statement here in Romans chapter 14, In verse 10, Paul says, For we all will stand before the bema of God. Now this is Romans chapter 14, verse 10. And then in verse 12, he says, So then each one of us concerning himself will give a word to God. So when i read reading Romans 14, verse 10, we're all going to stand before this Bema, this judgment seat of God, or some manuscripts will read of Christ. And then that 12th verse tells us we're all going to be individually accountable. So then each one of us concerning himself will give a word to God. So that indicates. All of us individually are responsible when we stand before this judgment seat. Now, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want you to notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And notice the statement in verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, which is just the word for an architect. I have laid the foundation, and another builds thereupon. Now some would say that this is only referring specifically to the leadership, since Paul, of course, laid the foundation, and then Apollos built upon it. And so some would come come to this passage and say, this is only referring to the leadership and their responsibility within an assembly. But I would move beyond that. I understand the leadership has the responsibility. But I would move beyond that and say, this engulfs everybody, all believers. But let's just notice it. I'm reading verse 10. According to the grace of God that was given to me as a wise architect, I have laid the foundation, and another builds thereupon. But let each man take heed how, notice that, how he builds thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the foundation, and we build upon that foundation. And the key is, in verse 10, how is it that we build? Now, verse 12. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, valuable stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will be made manifest, for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test Each man's work, now notice this phrase, of what sort it is. What sort it is. Is it, verse 12, gold, silver, precious stones, or is it wood, hay, straw? Is it something that's permanent or something that is temporary? So you read it in verse 13. Each man's work shall be made manifest for the day will declare it Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work, verse 14, abide which he has built thereupon, upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work will be burned, he will suffer loss. He loses the reward. But... He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So the question is not whether what is saved or not. The question is whether the individual receives the reward or not. And when you read verse 15, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, because it's nothing but, verse 12, wood, hay, and straw, But he himself shall be saved, even though he loses the reward, yet so as through fire. Now look at chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, and let me read the opening five verses. Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. For I know nothing against myself, yet I'm not hereby vindicated, but he who judges me is the Lord. Now, here's the verse. Therefore, judge nothing before the time. Until the Lord come, until the Lord come, this is when it's going to happen, until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall each man have praise of God. So according to verse 5, the judgment's going to happen when the Lord returns, rapture, resurrection. And when you read it in verse 5, everything that within me, that's what's going to be manifested. Why did I do it? How did I build? What sort of work was it? So when I read this in verse 5, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, will make manifest, here it is now, the counsels of the hearts. And then shall each man have praise of God. Now turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And notice Paul's words here. In verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 9. Wherefore we labor, Paul says... Wherefore, we labor, verse 9, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Now, when you read that ninth verse, wherefore, also, we are being ambitious, that's the word, to have ambition, whether... And when you read it here in in verse 9, whether at home or away from home, whether in the body, out of the body, to be well-pleasing to Him. So the ambition is to be well-pleasing to Him. And then he explains why. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in his body according to that which he has done whether it be good or bad so if the rapture resurrection happened today and we're all snatched up they are raised by way of resurrection we're snatched up by way of translation and we're now taken to the third habit and we're with Jesus Christ now of course our redemption is completed we're redeemed body and soul and now we have resurrected bodies, and we're standing before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat. And all of these passages talk about it. All believers will stand before the judgment seat. All of us will. And when you talk about it, obviously we're not all going to receive the same reward. So Oswald Sanders weighs in. And makes this comment on the basis of the examination that's going to happen by Jesus Christ when we're all there in heaven. And Oswald Sanders made the observation, all true believers who stand before the judgment seat will qualify for heaven, but not all will receive the same reward. So when you talk about our life here on earth as believers, which is very significant, very important, and the judgment is going to focus upon the stewardship of the gifts, the talents, the opportunities, the responsibilities that God has given to each one of us in terms of our Christian lives. And we're going to be evaluated. And we're not all going to be the same. Now listen to the words of one. Scripture does not teach what most of us seem to assume, that heaven will transform each of us into equal beings with equal possessions and equal responsibilities and equal capacities. It does not say our previous lives will be of no eternal significance. It says exactly the opposite. So we're not all going to be the same in heaven. There are going to be differences in heaven on the basis of how we live this Christian life. And when you read it, there are those who are going to receive more rewards than others. No question about it in terms of heaven. Now listen to Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan writer, and he's thinking about all of this and makes this comment. Heaven, like everywhere else, would be hierarchical. Some would be above others in glory, but such differences would cause no diminishment of happiness because all would wish only fullest happiness for others. I mean, there's no sin in heaven. It's not going to be as though I'm envious or jealous of someone else. We're all going to be absolutely perfect. But nevertheless, there are going to be changes. Now look at this passage in 2 Corinthians 5 once again. And when I read that ninth verse, the Apostle Paul says, this is the driving force in terms of his life. He was ambitious, but his ambition was to be well-pleasing to the Lord. He wanted to be well-pleasing to him. It wasn't just his outward activity. It was his attitude, everything about him. And he says in verse 9, it didn't matter whether he was alive or dead. This was the driving force in his life, to be well-pleasing to the Lord. And then he gives the reason why in that 10th verse. Now, when you read verse 10, and you think about this judgment seat of Christ, notice various things about verse 10. For we must all appear, for we must all appear before the Bema of Christ. Now this tells me it is a necessity. We must, we must. So it's not as though I may, it is I must. So this is not optional, this is mandatory. We don't have any choice on this one. For we must all. So when I look at it, this is an absolute necessity. Furthermore, all of us, no exceptions, all believers, all believers will be judged. No one is exempt from this. And Paul includes himself, we. For we must all. So he includes himself. So when you talk about this Bema seat, this judgment seat of Christ, which is going to take place after the rapture resurrection, it is a necessity, must, and it is universal in terms of all church age saints, all believers, no one exempt. Moreover, if you think about this judgment, it is an individual judgment. Because when you read verse 10, did you see how he moves from the plural to the singular? Look at it again, verse 10. For we must all appear before the bema of Christ in order that each one might receive the things for which he practiced through the body, whether good or bad. So he moves from some kind of corporate, collective kind of thing to an individual matter. It is what Paul says in Romans 14, 12, so that each one of us will give an account concerning himself to God. So it's a necessity. It is universal in terms of all church-age saints, and it's an individual judgment. Moreover, it is a judgment in terms of practice, not in terms of position. Look at the verse again. For we must all appear before the Bema of Christ in order that each one might receive the things for which he practiced. And that's the verb, proso, practiced. Through the body, whether good or bad. So this has to do with our practice. It doesn't have to do with our position. We're not here in order to find out whether we're saved. We're here because we are saved. We're already in heaven. So that's not the question whether or not we're going to be saved. Our position is secure in Christ. This is all about what is done through the body. But moreover, if you talk about this judgment, the one who's going to conduct it is Christ. It is the bema of Christ. It is the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to stand before Christ. And Christ is the one who's going to evaluate us. So if I read it, it's a necessity. It's universal in terms of church aid saints. It's individual. It doesn't have to do with position. It has to do with practice. And Jesus Christ is the one who's going to be sitting upon the mamacy. But furthermore, When you read the statement and it says that the believer is going to appear. That little word that's used there translated appear is a word that means to be manifested. So if I read it here in verse 10. And here's the reason why he was so ambitious. For we must, he includes himself. For we must all be manifested, manifested. So we're going to be turned inside out. It's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4. It's our motives. All the things going on within us. Why do we do the things we do? All of that is going to be part of it. So we're going to be manifested. We're going to be turned inside out. And he is going to evaluate the counsels of our hearts. Why did we do it? And all of that is going to be revealed. Moreover, when I read it, It's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns, rapture, resurrection. That's when it's going to happen. 1 Corinthians 4 5 teach this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 teach this. So the bathing scene is not going to happen until the rapture, resurrection. So if I were to die today, or you were to die today, what happens? Well, you leave your body. You depart from your body and you're in the presence of Christ, but you don't have a body. You don't have a body. So you're in the presence of Christ and in a, in a conscious state, your emotions, all of this, but you don't have a body. You're out of a body. I mean, resurrection means this, the body's gonna stand up. So when the rapture, resurrection takes place, then this body, this corruptible body, they're already with Christ. This corruptible body will stand up, and their soul, spirits will are reunited with their body, and now the corruptible body becomes an incorruptible body, never to decay or experience disease or death ever again. And if we're alive in mortal bodies, then the mortal body is going to be changed into an immortal body, not subject to death. So now salvation is is completed. Now I've been saved completely, and now I'm standing before the Lord in a resurrected body. And I'm standing before him, evaluated, examined, in terms of the babysit. So it's not going to happen until Jesus returns for the church. That's when the resurrection happens. That's when the translation happens. That's when the body is changed. The body has to be changed so that it can survive in that kind of environment. This one can't. So there's going to be a major, major change and that's when we're going to stand before Jesus Christ and we're going to be evaluated. We almost kind of visualize, you know, a long line as far as you can see. And we're all kind of in the line waiting to go up for our turn. And we're all kind of talking to one another. What is it going to be kind of like? And we're all in this long line waiting, you know. I mean, you can kind of visualize kind of things in your, in your head. And then you're standing before Jesus Christ. It's not going to be like that at all. I mean, all of us, you have believers all over the earth praying exactly the same time. And he hears all of those prayers exactly at the same time as though that was the only person praying. So, I mean, this is just totally beyond us. So I'm not going to be in heaven thinking about you. I can't believe in terms of this individual. I'm not going to be thinking that. And you're not going to be thinking that about me. We're all going to be there ourselves. Naked before the Lord. Evaluated. So I'm going to just be thinking about my, myself. I'm not going to be thinking about you. Or you thinking about me. Now when you read this. Look at the result of the judgment seat. Verse 10. For we, for we all must be manifested. That's a passive. That's a passive verb. God's going to do it. For we must all be manifested before the bema of Christ. In order that, here's the purpose: each one might receive the things for which he practiced through the body, whether good or bad. Now, when you read this, he's talking about the quality of the believer's practice. And he uses these little adjectives, good and bad. Now, you understand something that's good because something that's good is something that's permanent. It's like gold, silver, precious stone. I mean, it's something that withstands the evaluation. But when you read this word that is used here for bad, it's the, it's the adjective phallos. And phallos means something that's worthless. It doesn't mean bad. It means worthless. It's that, you know, that straw that, that you read about in 1 Corinthians that's burned up. So if I read this, and I talk about something that's good, that's the gold, silver, precious stones. But if I think of something that's worthless, that's that wood, hay, straw, that's that. So if I read it, the quality of the believer's practice is going to be demonstrated whether it's good or it's worthless. And then you say... Well, what does it mean when it says the believer is going to receive a reward? Because it says that. Each one, in order that each one might receive. So the believer is going to actually receive something. Now think about the evaluation and how the evaluation is going to take place. If he's going to evaluate what I've done in the body how is he going to evaluate what I've done? There, there, are three, there are three items that are really important. Number one, 1 Corinthians 4.2, it's required in the steward that a man be found faithful. So I'm a steward and he's entrusted me with various things and have I been responsible in terms of the stewardship? Have I been faithful? Have I been trustworthy? In terms of what he's given me. So I'm going to be evaluating. In terms of my stewardship. Whether I was reliable, dependable, trustworthy, faithful. It's required to stewards so that a man must be faithful. So I think of that. Secondly. Was it done in faith? Because remember what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.6. Without faith it is impossible to please God. So whatever is done has to be done in faith, which means what? Which means I'm trusting in what God says. I don't care about my emotions and feelings. I'm trusting in what God has revealed, and I believe this is true, and I'm acting upon it. So in terms of stewardship, have I been faithful? In terms of faith, have I believed what He's Set forth in Scripture, and have I anchored my thoughts there? And then thirdly, was it done for Christ or was it done for self? You remember Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So everything that's done, the most menial thing that's done, should be done for Christ. For the glory of Christ. Not for myself. But it has to be for him. So I'm being evaluated. I'm there. In the presence of Jesus Christ. I mean one day this is going to actually happen. And we're all standing before Jesus Christ. At the Bema seat of Christ. At the judgment seat of Christ. And I'm going to be evaluated and examined. Not whether or not I'm going to heaven. I'm, I'm already in heaven. Now I'm in heaven. And now I'm going to be examined and evaluated. Was I a... Faithful steward, did I act in faith in terms of my life, in terms of the way I lived? Did I do various things for the glory of Christ, or did I do it for myself? And the New Testament says, and we all know it, there are five specific crowns that are talked about that the believer will receive. Now let me mention these crowns you have what is known as the crown of life. It is mentioned in James 1.12. It's mentioned in Revelation 2.10, a crown of life. And this is a crown that's given to those who persevere under incredible trial, even to the point of physical death. Crown of life. James one twelve. Revelation 2.10. Second, there's the crown of glory, and the crown of glory is given to those who faithfully minister the word, First Peter chapter five and verse four. The crown of glory. Third, there's the incorruptible crown, First Corinthians chapter nine, verses twenty four and twenty five and the incorruptible gr- crown given to those who exercise self-control and master the passions of their body. Incorruptible crown. Fourth, crown of righteousness. That is in Second Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, and is given to those who long for the coming of Christ. Those who long for His coming and live in light of His coming. And then finally, there is number five, the crown of rejoicing, which is given to believers who win others to Christ, who evangelize and talk to others about Christ. So there's a crown of life. There's a crown of glory. There's the incorruptible crown. There's a crown of righteousness. And there's the crown of rejoicing. And the crown of rejoicing is, is set forth in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19. So I'm standing before Jesus Christ. He's evaluating me in terms of my stewardship, in terms of faith, in terms of motivation. Why did I do what I did? Did I do it for myself or did I do it for him? And then we read about these crowns that believers will receive. Now, do you remember what we read in Revelation chapter 4? You have this scene in heaven in Revelation chapter 4 and we are depicted as taking these crowns and casting them before the throne of God in worship and adoration. That's Revelation 4.10. So we take the crowns and we cast them before the throne. Now obviously that tells me these crowns were not bestowed upon me for my glory, these crowns were given for his glory. So it gives me an opportunity, obviously, to praise and adore him, cast the crowns before his throne. That's what I read in Revelation 4.10. But it raises a very good question. If you're living your life and you're evaluating and examined, and we're not all going to be the same, and we take all of these crowds, these five different crowds, and we cast them before Him, then how is the change going to happen in terms of heaven? What's it it going to be like? Now, do you remember when Jesus was transfigured in Matthew chapter 17 and in Mark chapter 9, Luke chapter 9? When you read of the Transfiguration, do you remember the change that took place in terms of his countenance? That he was brighter than the sun. And you think of the brilliance in terms of Christ. When the Apostle Paul came in contact with the glorified Christ, and he says that he was brighter than the midday sun, do you remember what happened to Paul? It was so bright that he was blinded for three days. Do you remember John in Revelation chapter 1, when he describes his face, he says his face was brighter than the sun. So you're thinking about the body of Jesus, the glorified body of Jesus, and this brilliant light, this brilliant light, so brilliant that it blinded Paul. Now, if you think about our body, our glorified, resurrected body, isn't the body Going to be conformed like the body of Christ. Isn't that Philippians 3:21? Now listen to Philippians 3:21. This is Philippians 3. And Paul is talking about the coming of Christ. And look at verse 21. <clears throat> this is when he returns. <clears throat> and he says in verse 21. He's going to change our body of lowliness that it may be conformed to the body of His glory. The body of His glory. According to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. So this body of lowliness is going to be changed, transformed into the body like the body of His glory. So I think about the glorified Jesus Christ And then I think about all of us, and we're going to have bodies that are fashioned like his body of glory. And I think about his body, brilliant light, that brilliant light, and then you think about us. Now, I want to read several passages. Turn back to to the book of Daniel. I want you to go with me to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. And we'll come to this portion of Scripture when we come back to the tribulation because it's very, very important in terms of what we read at the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12 because it's going to help us to understand various things about the Antichrist. But in chapter 12, verse 1, we're in the tribulation, but I want you to notice what we read. At that time, shall Michael stand up, the great prince who stands for the children of thy people, Now, Michael is the archangel, and Michael is the one who represents Israel. So when I read this, at that time we're in the tribulation, shall Michael, Michael means who is like God, stand up, the great prince He's the archangel, New Testament tells us, who stands for the children of thy people, Daniel's people, Jews. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, each one that shall be found written in the book. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine, now look at this, Like the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Now when you read this, you're reading of the return of Christ when he returns to the earth. There's a resurrection that happens. This is Old Testament saints. And then you move into a kingdom and you read verse 3. They that be wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness will be like the stars forever and ever. Now turn over with me to Matthew chapter 13. And this is the Lord's interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. And He talks about the tares being the children of the wicked one, and the wheat, of course, belonging to God. And you read this interpretation of Jesus as He's explaining this to His disciples in Matthew 13, verses 36 and following. But I want you to notice what happens when Jesus returns. Verse 41. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels. They shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend. And them who do iniquity shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is the second coming when he returns of the earth. Now look at verse 43. Then shall the righteous. Now notice this. Shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now we're entering into the kingdom. And now he's talking about the righteous shining forth like the sun. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The great resurrection chapter. And now he's talking about the body. And what the body is going to be like. But I want you to notice the words of Paul. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 38, God gives it a body as it has pleased Him and to each seed that's been planted in the ground, His own body. Now notice what He says, All flesh is not the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another a fish another birds There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another there's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for one star differs from another star in glory look at the comparison so also is the resurrection of the dead There's the glory of the sun, there's the glory of the moon, there's the glory of the stars, but the stars differ from one another. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is going to be different in terms of glory, brilliance. So when you read this and you talk about the reward, the greater reward on the basis of what we do in this life through the body in terms of our practice, what is he talking about in terms of these rewards or these crowns? Some will have greater capacity to bring glory to God. Some will have a greater capacity to bring glory to God. And not only will we have greater capacity to bring glory to God, we're going to have a greater capacity to be able to enjoy Him. So there's going to be a greater capacity in terms of this brilliant light and revealing various facets of Christ and there's going to be a greater capacity to enjoy him. One writes everyone in heaven will be fully blessed but not everyone will be equally blessed. Every believer's cup will be full and running over but not everyone's cup will be the same size. We determine in time what our capacity for appreciating God will be in eternity. It tells us uh, the importance of this life and how we live this life as Christians. Now, here's the way John Bunyan put it. Why shall he that does most for God in this world enjoy most of him in that which is to come? But because by doing and acting, the heart and every faculty of the soul is enlarged and more capacitated, whereby more room is made for glory. He that is best bred and he that is most in the bosom of God and that so acts for him here, he's the man that will be at best able to enjoy most of God in the kingdom of heaven. Or again he writes, Whatever good thing you do for him, if done according to the word, is laid up for you as treasure in chests and coffers to be brought out to be rewarded before both men and angels to your eternal comfort. So there's going to be a greater capacity to glorify him and a greater capacity to enjoy him forever. And it's all based upon our life here. The moment we're saved until the moment we die or the rapture resurrection takes place. Now this is a great little book by C.S. Lewis entitled The Weight of Glory. And this was a sermon that he preached. And this was a sermon that he preached back in 1942. But let me hold off. I want to talk about what is happening in terms of us in heaven. The rapture, resurrection takes place. The baby seat's not going to happen until that happens. If I were to die today, I'm in the presence of Christ. I haven't been evaluated, I haven't been examined. That's not happening yet. I'm there, but I don't have a body. Then the rapture, resurrection takes place. Now I got a body. Now I'm there, completely saved. Body and soul and I am being examined and evaluated to determine this capacity of glory and enjoyment. And all of that is happening in heaven while various events will take place on earth. Let me come back. I want to come back and I'll talk about this a little bit more because there's also going to be the marriage There's going to be a consummation in terms of the marriage, which the New Testament talks about in great detail. And then when we return, the marriage supper is not in heaven, the marriage supper is going to take place on earth. I'll come back and we'll talk about all of that. And then we will talk about what's going to happen on earth. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank thee for the scriptures. We know that our life here on earth has great, great significance. We know that it is imperative that we live this Christian life, that we live it in light of a future examination. We know that our motives, our attitudes, all of these things are going to be evaluated and examined. And we know that we're given just this day. We have no idea how long we are to live on this planet. But we know, Father, that we're immortal until our work on earth is done. So we ask that thou would deal with us, cause us, Lord, to be responsive in a good way, that we truly would seek to honor and glorify Christ in everything that we do. Work within us, Lord, bring changes within us. Even now, we pray, we desire to be submissive to the Holy Spirit so that he has his way within us. And we just ask, Lord, that our life here truly would count, not for time, but for eternity. Prayed pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.